Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Crossed Up, a Phillies podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Sanfilippo, at AntSanPhilly on Twitter. Joined, as always, by my co-host and Crossing Broad Phillies writer, Bob Wankel, at BW Crossing Broad. I apologize up front if I sound a little froggy tonight. I uh, got a little scratchy throat, a little losing my voice a little bit um, in this podcast. But uh, So I'll let Bob do all the talking tonight. I'll just chime in and say, yep, sounds good, Bob. Yeah, um, everybody's out after 45 seconds now. Yeah. <laughs> That's all good. But, uh, you know, here, here's the Phillies uh, coming off of another uh, not great week. Um, they just dropped two out of three over the weekend to the Milwaukee Brewers. Got pounded the first two games. Um, held on to win Sunday, uh, four to three. Almost they tried to give it away <laughs> at the end of the game, but uh, they held on and went to win the game. They sit three games over five hundred, and they head into a big week with a three-game set against the Colorado Rockies at Citizens Bank Park this week before heading out to Milwaukee. Uh, to play the Brewers over the weekend. So um, a big week ahead here for the Phillies. That really, I think, Bob, this is a week that's going to really be a telltale week because if they continue to struggle when you look ahead and you see a lot with the Nationals and the Yankees coming to town, that's really daunting. Um, but at least if the Phillies can build themselves back up a little bit of a cushion prior to that, um, I think there's a real chance that, you know, maybe by the end of June, they're still kind of in this thing. So I think this is a big week coming up for the Phillies. This is a series that I think is critically important to their success moving forward. You have a 500 Rockies team, a decent team here. By, by no means is this a, a gimme uh, series for them. But this is a time where they've really got to take care of business. You're allowed to have rough stretches as you go through a Major League Baseball season. It's going to happen to every team. It's especially going to happen to a young team like the Phillies who, you know, clearly they have flaws. And and I think that that's become evident uh, over the last two to three weeks. I think we all understand that. Not quite ready to hit the panic button yet. Uh, You know, it, it is a little bit of the ebb and flow of a Major League Baseball season, but it's also now time to get going. Uh, you have the Rockies for three here this week, uh, and then you have to go back out to Milwaukee, and you saw what happened here this past weekend, and uh, that's that's no joke. And like you said, you have the Yankees and the Nationals and, and some other tough com- competition mixed in there. Uh, if they want to make this season uh, relevant in terms of a playoff race, it's it's time to get going now. So this is a critical week. They have to take care of business at home. And, and I know that we say this a lot, you know, they have to do it. They have to show us something here. But when you really look at, at what's been going on and what's coming up, it feels like if they, if they plan to do it, uh, then they need to do it right now. And, and really, their general manager has kind of said as much. Uh, Matt Klintak came out uh, on Friday afternoon before the Milwaukee series, and, and he talked a little bit about what we do at the trade deadline will be predicated upon how this team performs moving through the middle of July and, and in late into July. So th- this is a critical time for this team. And I want to talk a little bit about that general manager, Matt Klintak, because he he annoyed me a little bit this week. And I've kind of been supportive of this guy since he got here. Um, You know, I understand that he's been patient, him and Andy McPhail. And I think it's kind of been the right approach to this point. But he went into the the offseason leading into this year and signed, what, five veteran players for this team um am i right on that nishek hunter santana arietta uh, arietta maybe it's just four all right either way um <coughs> excuse me but he brought in um you know four veteran players uh 
you don't bring these guys in to a team that you think is just going to be mediocre. And to hear him say, well, we knew the first two months we had a chance to be really good. And then when we hit June, we knew it was going to get tough. And, you know, we kind of expected this to happen. You, you can't say that. You can't come out and, and say, oh, well, sorry, we're playing better teams now. We're not, we're not there yet. You can't come out and say that, especially when the manager is saying, when he, was it during the, uh, the, the, was, it the was it the Giants series? Maybe it was, a, maybe it was uh, after the Giants series uh, when he said, we know we can play with the best team. Oh, it was the Cubs. It was during the Cubs series. We, we know we can play with the best teams in the league, and we're showing that. Really? So, like, who, who who's right here? You know, is are, should we believe Gabe Kapler, who's painting rosy pictures of this team, or should we believe Matt Klintak's, you know, slight doom and gloom that, oh, yeah, well, we kind of expected June to be a really tough month for us. Like, so, where, where do you go? So here he is. He says, uh, how we come out of June and how we transition to the month of July and what our placement is in the standings uh, in the month of July will be what really dictates our trade deadline strategy. Uh, if we're contending and in a legitimate spot to make a run, then I would expect to address that and make moves. We just have to maintain the proper perspective, and this is the key, on that and adjust our performance uh, uh, suggest uh, we adjust. Well, here's here's the thing. I mean, it's basically saying like, well, if we're good, we're good, and we'll go for it. And if we're not, well, oh well. It kind of almost completely removes uh, expectations. It kind of completely removes blame from the situation. I don't know if he's doing that to try to take some of the pressure off of a young group of players that is is going through a, a tough stretch right now, or if it's just to remove all accountability. Like, hey, listen, people, if we're good, you should be happy. But if we're not, you know, hey, we weren't trying to be good yet anyway. When you have the manager coming out in spring training and saying, like, we believe that we can make the playoffs. Now's the time. Let's go. We're ready to make this jump. If you look at what happened at the end of 2017 and the pieces that we've added over this offseason, we think that we can be competitive. So, yeah, you're right. It's a little bit of a conflicting message. And as a fan right now, I know that, that this team may not be ready to win a World Series. I don't know that anybody ever thought that this was one of the best teams in the entire National League. That was never the expectation, but at the same time, you come out and you get to nine games over 500. You reach first place towards the end of May, and then two weeks later, you're sitting here saying, like, well, if we're good, we'll go for it, and if not, eh, what are you going to do? And that's kind of the message that I think he's relaying here, and, and I do have a little bit of a problem with that because – what they've done lately is inexcusable. There's no excuse to lose the games that they lost in Chicago the way that they lost them. There's no excuse for going out to San Francisco uh, last weekend and scoring one run in three games. There's no excuse getting outscored 27-11 to 11 at home by the Milwaukee Brewers this past weekend. So just because you're hitting a rough stretch here doesn't mean that all of a sudden you should say, well, wait a minute, well, we never really expected to be here anyway because that's not the message that they initially sent. Right, and, and uh, I'm going to give you another quote from Clintac, and this was from um, Matt Gelb's story in The Athletic on uh, Saturday. Um, he said, this is, this is Clintac speaking, if you had a crystal ball in spring training, then I think it's reasonable to have expected that the Phillies would perform pretty well in April and perform pretty well in May, and as the schedule turned from May to June, then things would get more challenging, and that's basically what's happened. I mean, I mean respond. how do you respond to that? I mean... Come on. I mean, you know, April wasn't the greatest month. It was okay. It was good. I mean, they were, what, four games over 500? I mean, you know, it was okay. But there were stretches in there that weren't great. Again, anytime they played the Braves was not good. 
you know. Um, so, so I the guess Mets my question becomes great. at this point, uh, knowing that what we know at right now, what are they, 63 games into this thing, yeah. do you think that when we get to the trade deadline, we're going to be talking about a team that is considering its options in terms of adding to this roster to perhaps make a push at the wild card? I mean, I just don't think that they're able to play with the Nationals. As this thing goes along, I just don't think they're going to be able to keep up. They don't have the firepower. You see what's happening in the bullpen. We'll talk about this stuff in a little bit. The defense has been suspect. I don't expect them to be able to to come back and, and overtake the Nationals. It's not going to happen. Do I think that they are as bad as they've been over the last two weeks? I don't. And to that end, I, I guess I think, and maybe I'm kidding myself here, I, maybe I'm ignoring a lot of their warts, but I do think that they can compete and, and hover around the race for the second wild card. So that's my expectation. Where do you where do you stand on that? I'm not going to change my preseason opinion. I, I said they were an 85 win team at the beginning of the year, and I'm going to stick by that. <laughs> but I got to tell you, I'm starting to wonder what the team's approach is, and I'm starting to think. The more I read and and listen to these quotes that are coming out, I'm starting to think that they're transitioning from a team that feels it's competing to a team that's still kind of developing. Um, just further stuff. Um, Kapler was asked, you know, about playing Kingery at shortstop and Crawford at third base when it should maybe be the other way around. And Kapler's like, well, you know, Scott's developing at shortstop. We don't want to stunt the development by just throwing JP in there and taking Scott off the position. That doesn't sound like a manager who's, you know, got goals for the postseason, right? I mean that you don't that's not a playoff kind of quote that you're going to give there. And then when and then when you ask Clentac the same thing and he he gives you this response. It's a great question. And that sort of larger point is probably the single greatest challenge to a team like ours who is transitioning from a rebuild into contention. The balance between getting a player the reps they need and finding out if they can do it versus shifting gears and doing something else. There's not a simple answer to that question. There's a reason we continue to run out a lot of guys that we do. So he's basically telling you that they're trotting out guys who they want to see develop and crossing their fingers that they can stay competitive. And I don't have any issue with that. What I do have an issue then with say it. is that <laughs> what I do have an issue with is that, that there just seems to kind of be a a a disconnect here. Uh, J.P. Crawford comes back and he rehabs, and every single inning of his rehab assignment was played where? It was played at shortstop. Shortstop, yep. And so then all of a sudden he shows up here and he's playing third base. And if that's fine. If they think that J.P. Crawford gives them superior defense to Michael Franco and, and Franco's not part of the plans, and I'll get to this in a second – if that's what they want to do, that's fine. But do they view Scott Kingery as an everyday shortstop? Do they think that he's he's making strides there, that this is a potential sticking spot for him? Is this, hey, you're going to take reps at shortstop, and, and then eventually we may move Cesar Hernandez? And I understand that there are a lot of different variables at play here. If they win, maybe they hold on to Hernandez. If they fall out of it, maybe this is where, and we thought all along in the winter, that they would maybe, maybe ship him off in exchange for maybe more pressing needs. 
Okay, but I guess the way that this thing plays out over the next six weeks is going to dictate ultimately what they do. But it just kind of seems like they have a lot of parts. They have no plan for these parts, and they're just kind of throwing them out there, and it's, well, I, I, we'll see what happens. I don't get the sense that they really have a plan here, and I don't know if Manny Machado is part of their offseason plan. I don't know that he's their primary target. If you read all of the literature, you read John Heyman and Salisbury hinted at it today in a story that they may be eventually interested in him. Do they think that they're going to go out and acquire a third base? Maybe. I don't know. But right now, it seems like they have a lot of guys. They don't really know what to do with any of them. And so they're just like, well, let's just trot them out there and we'll, we'll see what happens. There's like no expectation. It's just, let's see. And uh, it's a really weird place to be in, especially when you had the start that they did. You added these veterans to the mix and you created some expectations, but then you play this way. And it's, it's a really just kind of a strange team. It's a strange dynamic. And, and what's going on right now, it's really hard to kind of make sense of it. No, you're right. And uh, so I, the way I look at it is somebody's feeding us a line. Is it the manager or is it the general manager? And why aren't they on the same page? And it makes me wonder if this is just a poor um, coordination of communication between them as to what the message should be. Or does it mean that maybe one is doing something different than what the other is expecting? I, you know, I don't know. I'm not – I don't want to – you know, make that inference that, you know, Kapler is is kind of a little rogue. Um, but, but it's certainly a possibility. I mean, it does, I'm not saying that it is, but it's it's possible. But it's just as possible that it's it's something as stupid as they aren't on the same page on what the message is. There, there's and one if, thing that I, that I keep going back to, and, th- and this is where I, I, I just cannot get past this. J.P. Crawford was billed as an impact player coming up through the system. He was going to be a premier defensive shortstop, right? Well, now, do you think that his bat, and, and, and I say, okay, well, you know, if he plays good defense at third base, there's some value in that. But this, this is what I can't get past. Can his bat play at third base? And no. the answer is no. He doesn't have the power. He's, he's not going to hit 330. He doesn't provide that type of offensive value at third base unless your shortstop is somebody that gives you the offensive production of a guy like Manny Machado. But J.P. Crawford's offense does not play at third base. You can talk about his glove and how that, that gives you a defensive edge, but that's, it's just not enough. I mean, he's not – he's not going to be able to provide you the offense that sticks at third base. So that's my first problem. Then I move over to Scott Kingery and I say, is this guy going to be an elite defensive shortstop? No. No. Can, can he swing? Maybe. You know, he hasn't to this point, but I do believe in his offensive potential. But long term, is this guy going to be a shortstop in this organization for the next 10 years? I doubt it. So though I'm okay with the we need to develop these guys and we have to take a wait-and-see approach – I, I don't think that either of these guys have a future to positions in which they're currently playing. And so that's what makes it bizarre to me. I mean, you just go, you go back and look at the numbers on J.P. Crawford, and this is the thing that I like, the, the exit velocity. The guy this year has an average exit velocity of 85.9. If he had enough at-bats to qualify, that would be 208th overall in baseball like you need your third baseman to be able to drive the ball and he doesn't do yeah. that at best he's going to be a guy that hits in the high 200s and takes some walks but he's never going to be a 35 40 double guy he's never going to be a 20 25 home run guy he's not an offensive difference maker so 
it's just to me, I, I say, okay, if you want to build for the future, that's fine. But the way that they're being utilized, I don't believe is how they're going to be utilized in the future. And, that, and that's what's kind of frustrating about this. Right. And because where does that, where does that leave you come the end? Now, let's say they keep doing this and we go through the season and, you know, let's say they miss the playoffs, but they, you know, they, they finish 500, 81 and 81. Where does that leave you going into next year? Like, did, did you really think that you did the best for this team by having these guys play positions that they're not going to ultimately be good at or, or succeed in? Because then you're going to go in the offseason and, and replace them with, you know, big name free agent. I don't know. Like, I, what, then what's the point? Then, like, what are you doing with these guys? Are you, you're not developing them. You really aren't. Because if you go out in the offseason and you sign Manny Machado to play here next year, either Scott Kingery or J.P. Crawford did not develop this year. And you did them no favors by doing it this way. So, I mean, what, what success did you really have in the, in the part of development? Right. I, I would argue you, got, you had none. I mean, maybe they, maybe they both develop, but it's just that the guy that's currently occupying second base isn't here next year. Maybe that's the – I mean, I guess the way you draw this up, the dream scenario, if you go back to March, is that Hernandez performs well, Kingery performs well, they move Hernandez because he's, he's you know, a luxury, basically, to what they currently have. You play Kingery at second base, Crawford develops as your shortstop, and then you go out and you sign your big-ticket free agent, a guy like Machado. Isn't that the way that you may have drawn this up in, in, a, in a dream, in an ideal scenario? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that that's the way it would have gone, but <laughs> there are a lot of things that have to happen to get to that point. And I, they're in this weird place with Cesar Hernandez because you see the reasons that they should trade him, but then you look at the performance of J.P. Crawford, you look at the performance of Scott Kinger, and you go, well, both of these guys, neither of these guys have done anything that really makes you say, like, well, th- you can definitely put them in an ink for the next five to seven years. There's, there's not – they haven't answered a lot of questions so far. I mean, there's still a lot of season left. There's still 100 games left in this, in this season, and, and maybe we'll get some clarity on these questions as we move forward. But to this point, sitting here in the middle of June, we haven't. And uh, it, it's a weird dynamic. And we haven't even talked really about Mike Alfranco yet. I mean, do you think, in, in light of what's happened here since J.P. Crawford's return, that we can kind of close the book on Franco? Is this just a matter of time now? Or is this – one last wake-up call, and they're holding out hope on him. I mean, what do you make of, of how, they've, how they've handled Michael Franco? Well, Bob, I think that the, the Phillies have made it crystal clear um, in the last few days that Mike, they, they, are, they are done waiting for Michael Franco um, to, to be their guy. I think that they've, his, his ship has officially sailed. Um, you know, he's got, what, over 1,800 plate appearances in his career. Um, and he's just not, you know, he's not adjusting the way he needs to adjust. I, you know, this season, I don't know, his first uh, 100 and some plate appearances, he had a, <coughs> an 865 OPS, which was pretty good. Um, since, I think it's like 471, which is dreadful. So is he a 471 OPS guy? No. But is he an 865 OPS guy? No. He's probably right smack dab in the middle there, which is, I don't know, what, 630, 640? That's not good enough. That's just not good enough. You know? I mean, if he was, you know, 730, 740, 750, then I'd say, "Ah, okay, we could probably still get by with him. Um, 
but there looks like they're just going to use him against lefties only and as a pinch hitter off the bench maybe get the odd start here to give a guy a rest but um yeah i think the, the they, they've sent the message that Michael Franco is no no longer a part of the future of the, of the Philadelphia Phillies. He's had a bizarre season. He um, he's hitting 246 against lefties this year, and he's actually hitting 248 against righties. But the OPS is up against left-handed pitching. He's 764 OPS against lefties this season, 677 against right-handed pitching. It, I, I almost wonder how much of this is lip service. Like, yeah, well, you know, we'll we'll use him in a platoon setting. I, I don't know that that's the case, especially if Kingery heats up and if Crawford starts to stabilize offensively I I think you're going to see him slowly get phased out I mean he may get starts against lefties for the time being but even at that point I'm not sure that how much sense it really makes Um, he's not significantly better against left-handed pitching as it is and really when you go through and you like look at his splits it's it's really strange how's this for the weird stat of the day Franco's hitting 083 against left-handed pitching on the road this season with a 269 OPS. Now it's only like 20 some plate appearances, so again, small sample size alert. But he's Bob, been I could, absolutely I could do, I horrendous, horrendous. Could, yeah, you I might be able to. Yeah. yeah. Now at home though, he's hitting 364 with a 1.122 OPS against left-handed pitching. So really, the disparity is in his home road splits: 837 OPS at home, 579 OPS on the road. But Guess what? That's great that you have intriguing splits, but the bottom line is, like you said, the average is a very mediocre baseball player. When you look at their overall production from the third base position, not just this year, but but dating back over the last several years, it has been below average. It's been subpar. It's not even close to being good enough. And I think that, like you said, you look at, at the sample that he's put together now in 2016 2017 the beginning of this year and I think it's very clear what he is I was afraid that they were going to give up on him too fast that we were going to let Michael Franco get away and that he would realize his potential but we've kind of arrived at the point where if that's what happens if that's what transpires that the light goes on in a different city I would probably almost justify it at this point as saying it just wasn't going to happen here I don't think that he's going to turn it around. Now, I wrote a story about a month ago talking about how much better he's been against the fastball this season, and that is true. He's still hitting 343 against four-seam fastballs with an OPS over 1,000, which is 276 points higher than his OPS was against the four-seam fastball a year ago. So there are some things that are better in his performance, and his average is you know in the, in the 240s. He's not hitting 230. But when you just look at this guy game in, game out, he throws away so many at-bats. He fails to adjust to how pitchers attack him and it's all the problems that we've talked about over and over and over again with this guy and to me it's just it's time I'm right there with him I'm right there with him I've had enough and I think it's 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 time to kind of phase him out I just don't think that he is part of the the next winning nucleus here in Philadelphia and I think that they are now recognizing that as well yeah and and that's you know credit to them for doing that because I think that that's what you have to do I don't think you can sit there and and, you know, say, oh, well, you know, give him a little bit more time. No, I, we've seen enough. I mean, when you have this many at-bats at the major league level and you can't get on base more than 30% of the time, there's an issue. Um, and, I, you know, his current war is the lowest it's been in his career. He's minus 0.4 right now. It's worse than last year. That's crazy to think that. And I think that that's a result of poor defense more than it is – offense because his offensive numbers are slightly better this year than they were last year um but nevertheless 
He's he there's not there's you look at his statistics, his, even his advanced statistics, there's negatives in front of every number. Like that's not good. You can't be a, a minus player across the board. Um you, you just can't. And that's that's it's terrible. Um like um baseball reference has a uh, something called uh, runs batting. It's a number of runs better or worse than the average player. Um uh you know, it's like a modified version of uh, WRAA. He's he was minus seventeen last year. It was the worst he was in his career. Well, he's currently minus three. It's only going to get worse, right? I mean, because that number accumulates. You know, runs better than the average. He's minus nine. So the, he's nine runs worse than the league average player in in runs. Well, this whole thing is like a microcosm for, for where they're at as a team. I mean, what is this team? And I think that that's really the question that we're all asking ourselves at this point. Is this a team that can be a fringe competitor? Is this a team that is is more of what they've been the last couple of weeks? And there are things that, that kind of suggest that they're they're doomed, <laughs> that you're looking at, at a 75-win team here. And then there are some things that you say, okay, well, if they can they can clean up A and B, then, then maybe they might be in this race. I mean, they're still 20-11 and 11 at home entering today. It was the best record in the National League at home. Um, they still have a positive run differential even after this weekend in which they got pounded. Um, they, they did kind of hang in there against the Cubs, and, and I am not a moral victories guy whatsoever. But, I mean, they go out, they dominate the, the first game at Wrigley Field, they come back, Wednesday night, and it was a game that they absolutely handed to the Cubs, uh, and there were a variety of reasons that that happened, and then they came back in the Thursday matinee game, and they left a million guys on base. I mean, they had every opportunity in the world to win that game. So, you know, they're a play away, the, the final two games of that series, from winning that series, and I, and I don't know. Does that expose them for what they are? Does that is that more about a showcase of their flaws and why they can't be a contending team or are there things if you really step back and you get past the frustration of the moment that you say well you know they went in there they got some decent starting pitching they they weren't overwhelmed they weren't overmatched there's been plenty of times they've gone on the road in situations like that in 2015 16 17 and they got their brains beat in so is this progress and it's just a sign of a team that's not quite there yet or are we seeing significant red flags that are going to be the things that end up killing them in the end and prevent them from contending? And I think that that's what we're trying to weigh out right now. And I think that that's where you're at with this team. And the thing that I will look at, and this is certainly not the end-all, be-all, but the all-star ballots, the, the first vote came out today, the, the update of the all-star voting. And if you look around the diamond, how many Phillies do you think are in the top five at their position in National League all-star voting? None. None, and you would be absolutely right. Odubel Herrera is ninth amongst outfielders at this point, and he's hitting two eighty-eight right now and is in the middle of a absolutely hideous stretch of baseball over the last two weeks. And, and so I don't expect him to, to be voted in at this point or to, to make the NL All-Star team, which is crazy that we'd be saying that after he's hitting three sixty-one in the middle of May. Um, right now, I mean, who's your, who's your NL All-Stars from the Philadelphia Phillies, Anth? Well, Aaron Nola. Um, and Aaron Nola. Aaron Nola. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Jake Arrieta up until two starts ago probably had a claim. Uh, Sir Anthony Dominguez, he's, he's just a little too, too soon. new. Yeah, yeah too, too soon. New. Yeah, too soon. Um, if, he, if he was here from the beginning of the season and was having these numbers, and, and I could see them maybe possibly bringing him as a middle reliever, but no. Um, I, I do think Herrera and Arietta, while they're on the outs right now, as far as the All Star game are concerned, I think they have a chance still to get there. Um, 
probably Herrera a little bit more than Arietta. Um, like if Herrera figures this out and over the next three weeks, you know, goes back to hitting the way he was hitting before, gets his average back up over 300, you know, um, I can see him being one of those final five votes, you know, in the fan vote thing. And, and I can see that as a possibility or, you know, Arietta, maybe he's got what four starts left before the all-star break, five starts. Um, you know, maybe if he has a nice run, um, up until the announcement, maybe he gets added as a starting pitcher, but that's it. I mean, nobody else has a chance. And, and let me tell you, I don't care. I don't care about the the All-Star game, and I don't need six Phillies to be there. But the reason why we're talking about this is because I think, in a way, it is an indication that they are, are not a very deep team. This is not a, a team that is absolutely stocked with high-end talent. Um, and, and I think that that's it's one other way to kind of paint this picture that maybe they're not, they're not quite there. Um, and I think that that's really the concern. When you look at their everyday position players, they don't have a guy that's really even sniffing the all-star game right now. And, and that, that just kind of makes me say, well, so what are they? Because that's really that's what this is all about. I want to know what this team is, and we're trying to figure that out week to week. And right now, uh, I'm a little bit lukewarm on them. You know? Yeah, well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what they are. There are seven of the, of the 13 position players currently on the roster. Seven of the 13 are batting below 225. That's all you need to know. <laughs> I mean, <coughs> they don't hit. They they just don't hit. I mean, yeah, there are some guys. You know, guys are still walking and getting on base a little bit, but there's no clutch hitting. They they leave runners stranded all the time. And we've talked about last week that how they don't do the the little things well. They don't bunt. They don't hit and run. They don't well, steal it's, bases. It's funny that you say that. Let me stop you right there. So after the Phillies win yesterday, salvage a game in the end of that series against the Brewers, Gabe Kapler comes out and he's all excited and he he says. You only get a few hits during the game, but you score runs because you move runners and you drive runners in from third base with less than two outs. I thought that was well played all the way around. And he was so excited about them manufacturing runs and and kind of scraping out some tough runs on a day where they didn't hit, which is pretty much like every other day. What I found interesting about that is that's not what this team is. Uh, That does not seem to be his offensive philosophy and I almost feel like as we watch this thing go along I don't know that Gabe Kapler knows what his offensive philosophy is I don't know that this team knows he doesn't what they're you know I don't think that they have an identity and I know that that sounds kind of stupid because at the end of the day it's about guys getting in the batter's box putting good swings on the baseball making hard contact that that's what makes a good offensive team but he has seemingly ignored small ball. He's he's ignored moving base runners. He doesn't hit and run. Uh, he doesn't sacrifice in obvious sacrifice situations. And so then for him to come out and kind of say, like, well, look at what we did today. I mean, it just doesn't fall in line with what they've shown themselves to be over the first two and a half months of the season. Now, if you're an optimist, maybe you're looking at yesterday's developments and saying, maybe he's learning. Maybe he's finally seeing now that he doesn't have the offense that he thought he did and that he can't win like that. So he's making an adjustment. I don't look at it like that. I think that he just said, we got guys on first and second. We're not scoring. Let me drop down a bunt here with Zach Eflin because I have to. And then they lucked out because, you know, J.P. Crawford had a good secondary lead and busted ass to third base, and, and he, he beat a throw on a bang-bang play. And that's really what led to that that three-run outburst in the uh, fifth inning, in which I think they had, what, like a base hit, you know? Yeah, no, so, you're right. I, they've stolen, as a team, they've stolen 25 bases this year. That pans out over the course of this year that they would steal 64. 
D. Gordon led Major League Baseball last year with 60. So one guy last year um, will have almost stolen more bases than this Phillies team is on pace to steal. That's terrible. And, yeah, you, and I think you I think you have something on Scott Kingery about this, right? This is the thing that blows my mind. One of the things that was was advertised as part of Scott Kingery's skill set was that he was a a very good base runner. Not that he was an elite base stealer, but a guy that could certainly be a threat on the base paths. So he comes out and and over the first 4 or 5 weeks he has like 5 steals and and whatever. I mean, that's nothing nothing crazy, but he he shows the ability to do it. On May 9th against San Francisco at Citizens Bank Park, he's caught stealing. First time he was thrown out all year. From that point forward, from May 9th until Sunday afternoon, he did not attempt a steal. He attempted his first steal in 26 games yesterday, and he made it. And, and, and to me, I don't understand that. How do you go a calendar month? And I know that Scott Kingery's not on base 45% of the time. I mean, like, let's establish that. But how do you not take chances? How do you not be a little bit more aggressive when your offense has such little production. You know, I, I understand not wanting to gamble with the little bit of success that you have offensively, but to me, it, the, the pattern, the formula to this point has not worked offensively. So it's it's time to be a little bit more aggressive. You want to see that. I, I I don't care what Bill James says about bunting. I don't I don't care that maybe in the long run the numbers hash out that, that that's not the most successful way to generate runs. For this team and their personnel and the way that they've, uh, you know, performed offensively to this point, I think this is something that they really have to reconsider. I don't understand how Scott Kangaroo goes 26 games without a stolen base attempt. That, to me, that, that tells you all you need to know about their lack of aggressiveness and the brand of offensive baseball that this team plays. It's, I, I hate to say it like this, and I think I've, I've used this analogy before, but this is the Emperor's New Clothes. It's we're going to make you think that we're this. We're going to make you think that we look good, that we're well-dressed. We're going to make you think that we're this kind of ball club. But the reality is, is we're nothing like that. The reality is we are far from that. And we're just going to make you believe that we are what we, what we say we are, even though we're not. And that's, re- that's really kind of what's, frust- what's frustrating me about the Phillies. Because, I look, I'm realistic. I understand that, you know, they're not quite there yet, and they're trying to get there. And and you know, there. I wanted to just them to be competitive this year, maybe be in the race a little bit. You know, come close. Um, I didn't pick them to make the playoffs, but I said that they would maybe finish a game or two out of the playoffs. Um, but that's kind of what I wanted to see, and it still could be that. But I'm not seeing what they're telling me they are, and that's that's what that's what frustrates me. Because you cannot pull the wool over my eyes. You cannot pull the wool over the eyes of the, this fan base. And I think that they're trying to do that. And I think it's a grave mistake. Because if, if this goes awry, Bob, if this team uh, really goes into free fall this month and fall, you know, ends up by the end of the month, I don't know, five games under 500 out of the playoff, you know, like 10 games out of the playoff race, it, it's going to get ugly. It's going to get really ugly, and we're going to start hearing people calling for the manager's head again. We might hear people calling for the general manager's head again, or general manager's head for the first time. Um, and, and there's going to be a lot of issues. It's, it, it's the Phillies are on, in my mind, are on a precipice, and they're teetering there right now. And that's why I, I mean, I opened the show by saying this week is such a big week for them, um, and, and I think it's because of that because they need they need to win these games, not just to stay in the race, not just to be relevant. But I think for their own benefit, 
Because if they don't, if they struggle against Colorado and then Milwaukee going into those series the rest of the month, it could be an, an abject, epic collapse and disaster. And, boy, who knows what we'll be saying uh, on this podcast in about three weeks. As much as I want to blame Kapler, as much as I want to say, well, you know, you have to be more aggressive. Where is the philosophy that it, it doesn't seem like they have a blueprint that they're even following? It's, it's almost like make it up as you go along. If I told you coming into the year that at this point in the season on June 12th that Aaron Altair would be hitting 189, J.P. Crawford would be hitting 197, Scott Kingery, who they inked to this deal because they just they had to promote him because he was so great in the month of March in Clearwater hitting two. 12 Nick Williams 220 I mean Reese Hoskins who we thought was going to potentially be a fringe all-star this season hitting 235 and I know that the batting average is not the end-all be-all and, and Hoskins OPS is 785 and there are some metrics that say that he's actually having a pretty decent offensive season because he walks and whatever but when you look at their individual offensive performance up and down this lineup it's almost like I, I, I sometimes I'm bewildered that they're three games over 500 at this point you should be and, bewildered. and, and <laughs> as much as I want to be critical of the manager to that end I mean he has not gotten a lot of help from this offense no. I mean almost every single guy on this team is underperforming and you we, we talked about this a little bit last week we talked about the hitting coach who's to blame is it Gabe Kapler is it the way that he's using guys defensively is that having an adverse impact on their offense whatever I mean the Bottom line is that he has a bunch of guys all at once that just aren't doing anything. And the one guy that was doing something, Odubel Herrera, over the last two weeks has just been an absolute disaster. He was 0 for 4 again on Sunday. He's down to 288. On base percentage is still 350, and that's fantastic. But we were talking about a guy that was a potential MVP candidate in the National League two, three weeks ago. And you would have thought, for sure that he would at least hit 300 this season. And, I mean, here we are now. And not that he can't get back there, but he's hitting 288 after that start. And I think that that accentuates just how bad he's been. Um, I mean, check this out. Since his 45-game on-base streak was snapped on May 20th in St. Louis, uh, at the end of play on May 19th, he was hitting 353 with nine doubles, a triple, seven homers, 30 RBI, and a 978 OPS. And he was striking out in 15.3% of his at-bats. Since that time, he's hitting 163. He has three RBI. He has a 402 OPS in 20 games, not one home run, and he's only walked three times in 84 plate appearances 24 of which have resulted in strikeouts. His K rate has almost doubled. He is a hot mess right now. Now, anybody that's listened to this podcast knows that I am the Odubel Herrera super fan. I think he's fantastic. I think he gets a bum rap in this town. I think it's bullshit the way that he's perceived by the vast majority of the fans in this town. Uh, it's, it's a bad deal for him. But right now, he's, he's awful. And, I mean, you've been watching the games. What do you see with Odubel Herrera? What's your take on all this? Is this just a streaky player going through a bad streak? Or is there more of a reason to be concerned about what we're seeing right now? No. I, so, I mean, I'm going to back up just for a second. I'm not the biggest uh, Gabe Kapler guy. I, I, um, I'm still in the you got to prove it to me mode. But I don't blame all this on him. I, I do think that a lot of people – um, need to share in this in this mess right now, um, from management to the coaching staff to the players themselves. And Odubel Herrera, you're right, is is part of it. I mean, you don't go from being an MVP caliber player to a three week stretch where you're 13 for 80, um, and and only three of those hits are for extra bases, and they're all doubles. Um, 
So you don't you, you don't do that. That's that's terrible. That said, he is streaky. We've seen it before. We've seen him have longer stretches than this. As a matter of fact, the beginning of last year was whoa. I think the month of May for him last year was, was like thirty some. Bad, it was like yeah. thirty some games. So it's it's even more than what we're seeing right now. So this is a bad twenty games for Odubel. If Odubel's still hitting like this, come the come Fourth of July, then we then we have a cause for concern. But I think what happens with him is I think that he's a guy that you know takes a little bit of time. Once once teams start pitching him a little bit differently, it takes him a little bit of time to figure out. Okay, now how am I going to hit this? And he does. He's a good enough hitter that he's going to find a way. He's so unorthodox that he's you know he'll swing at a strange pitch that you're like, what are you swinging at? And he finds a way to get a hit with it. Um, and I think that that's only a matter of time for him. And then he gets really hot again. So I'm not overly concerned with Odubel Herrera right now, but I'll tell you that if we're still having this discussion two, three weeks from now, then I might start to, to worry a little bit. But the fact of the matter is, he was the only guy that was hitting in the lineup. I mean, Carlos yeah, I mean, Santana. he carried them. He carried them yeah. the first five, six weeks of the season. Yeah, I mean, Santana a little bit turned it around towards, you know, he started turning it around toward the end of Odubel's on-base streak um, and has been, you know, he's been okay. Um, for for the past month, but uh, other than that, no one else in the lineup's been hitting. So you know, if really, if a, if you're a pitcher on the opposing team, you're like, okay, let me just bear down against Odubel Herrera and and uh, pitch him in a, in a much more aggressive fashion. You know, not giving him anything to hit, but giving him something that's close enough that maybe he'll chase it. And then we'll worry, and then we'll just let anybody else say, okay, say to the rest of the lineup, all right, here, try and beat us. You, you know, you're not going to get a hit. You know, so I think that that's part of it. If guys around Herrera start hitting a little bit, and I mean, you know, especially a guy like Reese Hoskins who's batting in front of him in the lineup, um, I think then maybe you'll see Herrera turn it around as well. Because they say hitting is contagious. It's not that it's contagious. It's that you get pitched differently based on how other people around you were playing as well. And I, and and I, I think, think that's it, part of it. I, I yeah. also just look at the mechanics of it and the huge leg kick. He starts open. He closes. There's a lot of movement on the lower half. It's a very timing-based swing. It's it's not a quiet swing, right? You know, you talk about guys that have very little movement on the lower half uh, and, and, you know, they slow down the feet a little bit and then they're quick up top. I mean, Herrera is it, very long. He lunges. There's a big load. There's a lot going on there. And because it's so timing-oriented, when you're off by a tick, and, I, and Gabe Kapler talked a little bit about this, and he said right now that the timing is messed up, the rhythm is messed up, and, and that's what leads to a lot of those awkward swings. I mean, when you see those swings where the ball's in the catcher's mitt and he's kind of flipping his bat after the fact, or he's up there guessing, he's taking pitches right down the middle, called thirds, you just see right now that he's, he's confused. The mechanics, when, when you're locked in, when you do all of that and you are you're dialed in, you can have a lot of success with that. But when you're off just a fraction, you're completely out of whack. And I think that that lends itself to his streakiness. I think that that's really why you see that because it, that lower half of that swing is so busy. The plate coverage is excellent, and I think he's a very talented hitter, but it, it's just such a complicated swing on the lower half that I think that's really what lends itself to being such a volatile – makes him such a volatile performer. Um, I, I'm not at the point where I have really any concern, but it certainly has been unfortunate to watch him go through this, and it really has kind of coincided with the Phillies' struggles of late. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of struggles, let's flip it to the other side of the ball. <laughs> yeah. And we talked about this last week a little bit, but, geez, we've unearthed some new numbers, and it's really kind of depressing. 
the Phillies defense is a, is a is a train wreck. You know, you watch it, these games, Anthony, and you you watch the games and you say, "Man, this team is really poor defensively." And you know, how, like sometimes you watch sports and your eyes tell you one thing, but then you do a, a little dig around on the numbers and you say, "Oh, it really isn't that bad," or it's not what I thought it was. I mean, what your eyes are telling you is exactly what the numbers bear out with this defense. It, it, this is one of the worst defenses. It, in this city that I, I can remember. I, I just don't remember watching the Phillies play baseball on a nightly basis and, and so frequently saying, how the hell do they not make these plays? I mean, every night it's something new. Yeah, like catchers, four catchers interference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Knapp had two catchers interferences last Thursday uh, at Chicago, and then he, he blocked the plate. It was a tough play. Uh, you know, obviously Dylan Cousins uh, – it makes a, a hell of a throw to the plate and whatever. I mean, it, it, I hate the rule, but it is what it is. He blocked the plate. I mean, he had three different interference calls in that game on, on Thursday. It's, it's amazing. Um, and, and really, by every single metric, they've been horrendous. So a 979 fielding percentage, it's the second worst in all of baseball behind the Chicago White Sox. They've made 48 errors this season, uh, the second most in Major League Baseball. They're tied with St. Louis. They're only one behind the Rangers, who've played five more games than them um, and you look at the more advanced defensive metrics they've been terrible in that respect too so it, no matter where you look whether it be just straight up errors you look at UZR you look at defensive runs saved you look at some of the other defensive metrics on fan graphs I mean they're bad everywhere um, and, and so what your eyes are telling you uh, certainly has been the case and they're doing all this in an era when Major League Baseball is about to set a record for good fielding good defense um, the pace that they're on right now is for 2,730 errors for the entire season. That's not the Phillies. That's Major League Baseball. Um, it feels like that the would Phillies. Be, it feels like the Phillies, right? <laughs> but that would be a record low. Um, and the league average fielding percentage right now is 985. That's league average. And that's got a shot to be the best ever. Um, I think not 2013 was 986 or 987. Um, that was the best ever. So they're, they're, getting, they're close to that. The Phillies are are six points below the average team in fielding percentage, and like you said, you pointed out their errors. They're second most in baseball. It's it's a mess, and it's and it's not it's it's everywhere. We mentioned the catchers, the inf- the infield. Like you had some stats last week that showed that they were terrible at shortstop, terrible at third base. Um, I looked up some stuff <coughs> um, on the outfielders. And if you go to Baseball Savant, you can you can look at um, a lot of stats that are used with Statcast, which I know everybody loves Statcast now. Um, and they have like a um, a star rating system um, for outs uh, in in uh, the outfield. And you know basically what they do is based on the distance covered to catch a ball and the speed of the ball off the bat, um, they determine. A, if a, if a, a ball is a fi- a catch that is made is a five star, four star, three star, two star, one star, and basically it's it's in like quadrants, right? Twenty five percent quad. So a five star catch would be a catch that is twenty five percent or less chance of being caught. Um, so there's not, a, I mean, most of them fall in, right? Um, but if you go down, a one star catch it has a ninety one to ninety five percent chance of being caught. So. Almost, that's like an extra point, right? Like the right. old extra point in football. It's, it's a, it should be automatic. The Phillies rank 27th in baseball in one-star catches. 
they catch 87.9%, less than the average. That's that's terrible. Um, uh, their outs above average is right now minus seven for the outfield. Only the Royals and the Orioles are worse. Royals are minus nine. The Orioles are minus 18. Um, they're just not getting to balls in the outfield. And I can't tell you why. I mean, Odubel's decent. I mean, his if you look at his stats, he's kind of like, you know, right in the middle. Um, I'd say he's probably like 21st, 22nd in most of these outfield stats. It's the corners where they're just they've, dreadful. They've really struggled. Um, I'll just kind of throw some team stuff at you, and then I'll walk you through individually. Uh, just looking around fan graphs here, right? So uh, defensive runs above average as a team. It's a metric that evaluates a team's defensive performance in relation to the league's positional averages. The Phillies rank 27th with a negative 13.3 mark. And you go, okay, cool. Like you're throwing numbers out here. What does that even mean? Just for context, that number falls into what they deem to be the poor range. Um, negative 20 and below would be categorized as awful. Only the Orioles, who are at negative 20, 24.4 are in the awful range, but the Phillies are very poor. They're 29th in ultimate zone rating, UZR. Um, it's a sabermetric stat used to measure fielding. Again, it kind of compares uh, the event that actually happens to data and, on and, similar hit balls. And, and, and let me stop you for let me stop you just for one second, Bob. I'll let you continue. Yeah. When you think about the Orioles, right? You talk about them being the only team that's worse. The Orioles are trotting out in their def- regular defense. Chris Davis, Mark Trumbo. Trey Mancini, all guys who should be DHs, and Manny Machado playing shortstop where he's not as good as he was at third base. Yeah, and they're also 27 games under 500, yeah. so uh, and, they're 19-46. You know, jo- yeah, Jonathan Scope is not a great defensive second baseman. Adam Jones is getting old in center field. Like They don't have guys right. that are good defensive players. Yeah. So, I mean, and they're the worst team in baseball. So, like you said, I mean, just think of the comparison you're comparing a Phillies team who we're sitting here saying should be competing for a playoff spot and saying oh yeah well they compare with the worst team yeah I mean they're they're the only team the Orioles are the only team ahead of them in in that metric and same thing 29th in defensive run saved negative 47 the Phillies are in defensive run saved as a team And, and when you look at it on an individual basis it's bad everywhere they're 22nd at first base uh, they're 17th at second base. They're 29th at shortstop, 25th at third base, 29th in left field, Herrera 18th, and then in right field, they're 21st by that metric. I mean, they have been terrible everywhere. Think about a baseball that gets hit to the left side of the diamond against this team. You have the, the 25th best third base defense, the 29th best shortstop defense, and the 29th best left field defense. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely terrible. And so we all focus, we fixate on this offensive performance, but really the defense to me, th- that's why I'm really concerned. Because if this was a team that relied on its starting pitching and they had a, a, a fairly effective bullpen, I'd say there's a formula here in place. There's a way that you can kind of say it's not going to be pretty, but they're going to be able to grind out wins like they did the first seven, eight weeks of the season. But when you look at what they do defensively, I just don't think that they're going to be able to hold up because their pitchers just don't get any help. They don't get help offensively, which leads to high-stress innings, and they don't get any help defensively, which leads to extra pitches, extra opportunities, and so on. So what is the formula that they're leaning They're leaning on? Now, that doesn't mean that the Phillies can't get hot again, stabilize, and keep themselves in this thing. I don't think that they're, they're going to spiral out of control. I don't expect that. But... When you really want to bring yourself to, can they compete? Can they can they remain in it? It's just it's hard to see that path. 
So that's where you, you kind of kind you, you just kind of look at it and go, maybe this is just what they are. Maybe maybe they're just going to be a little bit short of okay. And and that's really the concern. And I mean, the defensive numbers are a huge issue, huge huge problem. Yeah, it's a it's a mess. It's a total mess. And I don't, I don't even know where you where the blame falls there. I mean, that's got to just be on the players. I mean, I, you know, I guess we could you know, I could make an argument that you know shifting kind of affects that a little bit. I think part of it's youth. I, I think you have yeah. some guys that just are getting acclimated to the major league game and I think that some of it has to do with the fact and we talked about this several times guys are playing out of position Reese Hoskins is not a left fielder Scott Kingery is not a shortstop J.P. Crawford though he gives you above average third base defense I suppose that's what we're being told anyway and and certainly from the eye test it looks like that's the case but again hasn't played a ton of third base I know he played a little bit at the end of 2017 Uh, but Mike Alfranco has taken the majority of reps at third base this season and and I know that people want to say that he's an above average defender but he's not Uh, not. there's actually nothing that suggests that that's a a narrative that we were kind of sold uh, and we we kind of went along with it but he's not an above average third baseman uh, defensively um, you know, Andrew Knapp has been a disaster behind the plate defensively. Uh, Alfaro has has been much better. Certainly a great arm behind the plate, but he, he has things that he needs to improve upon. Carlos Santana went through a three-week period where he was he – was, Chuck Almost Knobloch. on the on the brink of being unplayable defensively. So, you know, there, it really isn't too hard to see why. And and I don't know. Do you put that on the player? Sure, because I think the player accountability is a big issue with this team right now. I think that that's one of the reasons that you heard from Jake Arrieta the way that you did a week ago. But I do think that there is a little bit to be said about management and development taking a role in this as well. You know, and I, I do think that there's a combination of factors there, which then – so what have we hit on? We've hit on the offense and we've hit on the defense. And the starting pitching has regressed a little bit lately, but it's still fine. I don't really want to go too deep into that. Let's just talk a you little mean bit. You don't want to talk about Vince Velasquez's yeah, performance? No, you know what? I'm low-hanging fruit. I'm just going to let that be. <laughs> and uh, okay. we'll revisit that after this week. Uh, I'm going to okay. try to go a, a, a podcast without taking my shots there. But, yes, certainly not his <laughs> best on Friday night. Um Let's talk a little about Sir Anthony Dominguez because he may be the only uh, guy that anybody has any confidence in coming out of that bullpen right now. All these guys have electric stuff, but they've really struggled. Um, They've all really kind of gone through it at at different points so far this season. Uh, To me, the the backbreaker uh, that's kind of led them to this point, not that they're they're screwed, but what's kind of brought on this negativity is that game that happened last Wednesday night uh, at Wrigley Field. They take the lead late on the two-run homer. 5-3 5-3 going into the ninth. Uh, Dominguez walks into the bat in the ninth inning, and he goes back out after he pitched the eighth, and he gets into some trouble, and he leaves the game first and third uh, with one out. Uh, and then they go to Adam Morgan. Um, he gets an out. Uh, Cubs get an extra base runner. Bases loaded. Two outs. Jason Hayward steps to the plate, who cannot hit left-handed pitching. And uh, it was a 2-2 count. Morgan looked in. He stepped off. He was unsure what he wanted to do. Got back on the rubber. And then he stepped off again, and Jorge Alfaro, and, and I have a story for you on this. He trots out to the mound. And my girlfriend, who uh, she's got two master's degree, very, degrees, very smart girl, she, like, plays the part. She tries with the Phillies. She's like, you know, I know that you care, so I care too, but she doesn't really care. <laughs> she looks at me, and she goes, I feel like that this isn't good. And I said, no, they're, they're screwed. This isn't going to end well. And, uh, you know, sure enough, Morgan gets back on the mound, and he grooves a fastball. 96 on the, you know, it was up a little bit and, and Hayward connects on it and grand slam. And she goes, 
I feel like this loss is worse than most losses. And I said, <laughs> very astute observation. So when my girlfriend, who doesn't know a damn thing about the Phillies, um, can say that this loss feels worse than most, I, I think that that kind of gives you an idea of just how bad that loss was last Wednesday night. And I think, uh, that, should, I think that should give you an idea to put a ring on that finger. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm just saying. Yes, like, I mean, when, and, uh, when she reaches that point, yeah. I mean, I think that that's where you got to go. I think that, that that might be a thing. We'll see. Oh, <laughs> Thank okay. you. I hope she's not <laughs> listening. Yeah. <laughs> I do not. <laughs> Thanks a lot, man. Yeah, um, no, and, and I mean, so here's the thing. I, I think there are two primary issues there. The Phillies bullpen stinks. Um, they haven't performed well. They have some talent, but they haven't they haven't performed well lately. Nope. Um, and and two, I, again, I, I just kind of question the the management of the bullpen. I don't know that we should be trotting out Dominguez for two inning saves, two inning appearances. I, I don't know that you should have used him the night before uh, in a five nothing game when he entered uh, to pitch right. an inning. I know he had not pitched for a few days prior to that, but if you're going to use the guy for thirty to forty pitches and you know every time you you call on him. Or if that's going to be a thing you plan to regularly do with him, then why are we using him in that situation? And and so right. the usage of Sir Anthony Dominguez to me is is a concern. Um, and I don't know where you're at on that. We haven't talked about this, but I, I do. I'm starting to become concerned about how they are utilizing him. Yeah. So you know, obviously the guy's electric. He comes in and throws 98, 99, um, and most most guys can't touch it. So you sit there and say, all right, let's look at the the two games now that he's given up a, uh, given up a run. Um, you mentioned the Cubs game last week um, where they blew it with a grand slam by, by Hayward. Um, he come, Now, I understand that you needed to get him the game the night before. I'm not a huge fan of using your best reliever in a game that you have a five-run lead, but they did it because they needed to get him some work. So he warms up, and warming up is always the most taxing thing on a relief. Every relief pitcher will tell you. That it's not the pitches thrown in the game, it's warming up that is the most taxing thing because it's throwing hard from being cold and doing it quickly. Okay, so that's the most taxing thing. So they warm them up and go. So the next night they go against the Cubs in the game that they blow. And they decide to go to him again, but now you're going to go to him for multiple innings. Well, if you only, if you used him the night before and you warmed him up the night before, maybe you only use him for one inning on June 6th against the Cubs. Instead of going trotting him and back out for the second inning when he actually got himself into a little bit of trouble with a walk and a single. Um, so maybe you only use him one inning. So maybe, okay, let's say in that situation you wanted to use him in the eighth, then don't bring him back out in the ninth. Not to say that you start the ninth inning fresh with Adam Morgan, but you know whatever the, the matchup calls for, maybe that's what you do. Then let's look at Sunday when he comes out to pitch two innings. Again, I don't mind him pitching two innings, but the pitch count got ridiculous. He threw 41 pitches, the most pitches he's ever, he's ever thrown out of the bullpen um, in the month, 33 days he's been in the major leagues. Um, and he started to get into trouble when he, his pitch count got high. His previous high was 26, and that was the game against the – I'm sorry, it was 31. There was one where he had 31 uh, against the Cardinals in a two-inning save. Um, but he went to 41. That's that's asking a lot of a guy no, who's throwing ninety eight, ninety nine. I think that Gabe Kapler might tell you. Well, uh, we had not used him since that game on Wednesday night, so he was off Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Right. Uh, so we had three days full rest, and we knew that we had the off day on Monday. So, it, what what about that? I mean, you know, hey, he, he can't it's handle forty one pi- pitches 
at 99 miles yeah, I'm an just hour. Yeah, playing devil's advocate. I completely agree. Well, yeah, with that's you. the thing. Look, yeah. I mean, he's a look. Dominguez is a former starting up until this year was a starting pitcher, so we know he can he can throw with length. But again, when you're a starting pitcher, the way you get your arm ready is a lot different than the way you get your arm ready as a as a relief pitcher, and that's what's often forgotten here. And to to say to a guy, are you haven't pitched in three days? Get your arm ready really quick. Come into a game, and then we're going to ask you to throw 99, 41 times. And that's that's where it goes awry. At some point, you have to sit there and say, "All right, the, this is where to me a pitch count matters." I don't think it matters. As, I don't think that that magic number of one hundred. I don't know where that came from. Um, it just seems maybe I think it just seems it seems like a good number to stop starting pitchers at, right? A hundred pitches. Um, but I think that pitch counts for for relievers are important. And you can't. You can go back and look. You know when bullpens are overmanaged in the playoffs in the last several years, and you can see it when pitchers who don't normally pitch a lot of innings or who who have to warm up a lot, all of a sudden they start throwing. You know, 30, 30, 40 pitches, they start to lose it. I mean, I can think of a Roldis Chapman blowing a save in the playoffs. I can think of Kenley Jansen blowing a save in the playoffs. Hmm. I can think of Craig Kimbrell. Um, so these guys who throw hard. And they and they they just can't do it for a sustained amount of time. So at some point you have to sit there and say, "All right, either he only throws one inning, or if we're going to two innings, we have to cap that that pitch count." That's it. I mean, that's the way it is. Otherwise, you're you're only making him, you're only you know exposing a weakness for him because that ninety nine is going to suddenly fall to ninety seven, ninety six, ninety five. Now it's a hittable pitch. Yeah, and I think that. The idea that for years and years you use your best reliever in the ninth inning, and I know that that's a little bit of an outdated philosophy. You want to use your best relievers in high leverage situations, but you are seeing here that the Phillies seem to kind of run out of bullets by the time they get to the ninth inning. And uh, Angelo Cataldi uh, th- did a great job in an interview on um, on Friday morning with Kapler. He comes on a couple days, actually the day after they're, they lose two in a row at Wrigley to, to close out that series. And Cataldi asks him, what's, what's the deal? You know, it seems like you guys are struggling to know when to use relievers. And he says, we don't have an issue identifying when to use Sir Anthony. And to that end, we don't have an issue identifying when to use any of our relievers. I've been consistent since spring training and sharing that we're going to use our relievers in the situations that are best suited for every single night. And Cataldi pressed him. He's like, well, I would argue that, that you didn't do that on Wednesday night. And he's exactly right. But this is where I kind of get conflicted. My thing is like, well, if you felt that the seventh and eighth innings were the most important innings of the game against the Brewers on Sunday, and you felt that you needed to bring him in on eighth in, in the eighth inning on Wednesday night, I, I do get that because he's so limited in his options. I mean, I know that the thing was that Adam Morgan was the right matchup against Jason Hayward, and the reason that Adam Morgan was the right matchup is because Jason Hayward can't hit left-handed pitching. But it's not because it's not because Adam Morgan's effective. Even entering that at bat, I'm not talking about after the result. Entering that bat, Adam Morgan had allowed a 296 batting average to left-handed hitters this season with a 441 on-base percentage. Think about that. 44% of the left-handed hitters that Adam Morgan had faced prior to Jason Hayward had reached base this season. So this idea that Adam Morgan was absolutely the slam-dunk guy to go get Jason Hayward wasn't predicated on Adam Morgan being the guy. It's just that he was facing a guy that could not hit left-handed pitching. Otherwise, you could argue, where was Adam Morgan in the ninth inning on Sunday? Sure. Because he went to Tommy Hunter to get um, Yelich. And he he's a left-handed you know, hitter. Hunter's uh, tough against lefties, and, and I'm okay with that. I'm and okay he is. with that, but that just it does it. It certainly it underscores the fact that that Adam Morgan just really hasn't been effective. I mean, 
the guy's got a 5.29 ERA in 26 appearances this season. He's not what he was in flashes a year ago. I know he has a wipeout slider. He throws in the high 90s. He doesn't get results, and I mean, that's just the bottom line. So I understand Kapler's reliance on Sir Anthony Dominguez and trotting him out there 30, 35, 40 pitches in these appearances because he feels like he might be the only guy I can really truly rely on. But my, my concern with that is, and you talk about pitch counts and usage, well, after giving up only two hits in his first 14 and two-thirds innings, well, he's given up four hits now in his last two appearances, three earned runs in his last two appearances. And I'm not saying that, that there's a reason to be concerned about Sir Anthony Dominguez, but this guy's not Superman, and you can't just trot him out there for multiple innings two, two three times a week. It, it just It's not going to work. So he, he, I, I he know throws, that— He throws strikes. 67% of the time. So when that pitch count gets up and the fastball res- and the fastball speed dips, he's hittable. That so he's got to be limited. You got to sit there and say we got to stop him at maybe 30. 25 to 30 is the number of pitches that we go to Sir Anthony with. And if it's, we can get out two innings out of it, great. But maybe it's only an inning and a third or inning and two third. Maybe it's only one inning. Whatever it is, you got to just go by the pitch count with him because of how hard he throws. And really, I think that the issue in the bullpen is the same issue that that they're having with the defense and the same issue that they're having with the offense. They have guys that are capable of playing better than they have played, and they simply just have not done it. The bullpen is underperforming now. Guys in that lineup are underperforming. Defensively, there are some guys that are underperforming. And it's, it's not that they're incapable of doing it. It's just that they aren't doing it right now. And it's just going to be a matter of can they can they get back to playing the way and it's not going to be lights out, but are they are they going to be able to get back to the way that they're capable of playing or are they going to continue to falter and, and really just kind of fall short of, of what they can do? Nobody's asking them for to, for them to do more than they're capable of, but simply just do what they can do. They need more out of Hector Neris. They need more out of Tommy Hunter, who has been a little bit better lately. They need more out of Luis Garcia. He can't be giving up grand slams in the sixth inning against the Brewers like he did on Saturday. Like These guys, they just they have some ability – they need to start realizing that ability again, and if they can't, then then we're going to be in for a, a continually a continued prolonged stretch of bad baseball. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I I don't like to be the I told you so, right? But I, I don't, and I don't think it's because they're not talented. I think that they're talented enough. I think that the misuse of this bullpen over the course of the first two and a half months has been the contributing factor to these guys suddenly you know being hit and, and and struggling i mean it's just it, it is what it is i mean you know garcia was what lights out for for a while and then i mean i don't know he's i think it's what one two three four five six seven eight nine ten his last ten appearances he's given up two hits six times i mean you can't do that coming out of the pen yeah you know, I mean, that's that's a that's a problem. Another podcast and another fifty-five minutes of positive Phillies talk to get to get everybody ready for the week. You know, it's and, uh, well, that's what people want to hear. In, people yeah. want to hear intelligent Phillies yeah. talk, as you saw on Twitter today. I did see um, that. Yes. Yeah. Hey, one last thing. Ah, uh, yes. Um, it's time for one last thing. I want to one like last try to thing. Like, I want to get like a an announcer for that. Like one last thing. You know, one we, of those I, I bet if we ask Russ to come up with something for us, yeah, he will. Do it, yeah. Yeah. So Russ, get on that. Come up with like a little sounder with with somebody going one last thing and some like music underneath it. Right. I like that. <clears throat> uh, actually, this is usually I'm the guy who pulls out the one last thing, um, but this is one you pulled out today. Um, Buster Olney's story. Uh, I guess it was late last week. 
Um, he came up with a proposal. Um, maximizing pitcher, uh, maximizing the amount of pitchers you're allowed to use per nine innings at four. So he argues that if you limit the number of pitchers that are allowed to be used within a nine-inning span, and you can go past four uh, if it goes extra innings, but if you limit it to four, that it will vastly improve the game. It'll improve offense because offense is really terrible right now. Um, it will speed up the game a little bit because there'll be less pitching changes, and um, it'll just it'll just be better. And his argument is stemmed <coughs> stems from the amount of pitchers that are used per game and how it's increased. Just in the last ten years, it has gone up from an average of three point nine three pitchers per game in two thousand nine. This is per team, not total to 4.25 this year. And if you go, if you look at um, decades, uh, each of, you know, in 10-year splits, so 2018, we're at 4.25. Go back to 1998, it was 3.46. 1988, it was 2.75. So in 30 years, there's an average of one and a half more pitchers being used per team per game. That's crazy, and, and, and he's right in that regard. But I'm not certain that I think this is a good fix. Well, this, this whole thing is kind of based upon the premise that strikeouts are way up, batting average is way down, pace of play still down, uh, you know, because of the amount of pitchers being used. So, to me, I guess if you were to put four guys on a card, you would maybe stick with starters a little bit longer. Um, probably would be, not probably, certainly would be more advantageous to the, to the offense. Um, you limit a, the amount of 95 to 99 mile an hour arms coming out of the bullpen. Um, you, you probably see more contact. You see more runs scored. You probably do see a little bit more efficient pacing. Um, less pitches thrown because the strikeouts come down. In theory, it, it makes sense um, t- to that degree. I just this game has been played with limited restrictions for so long and and I don't want to go down the baseball purist route here but like I just don't understand coming up with arbitrary rules and introducing them out of the blue and certainly rules that would have a drastic impact uh, on the product on the field and I know that it that there are things that need to be revamped and probably reworked with Major League Baseball and and people I'm the minority you know I always say well it's fine the way it is whatever this is it's just baseball but I know for the vast majority of the public, they don't view it that way. So I understand things need to be tweaked. But I don't understand the limiting factors in terms of strategy. To me, if you have certain guys on a roster, they're there for a reason. And you should be able to utilize those guys in whatever way you want if it's going to help you win the game. Yeah, Bob, you're 100% correct. And that, that that's the thing that really rankles me more than anything else. I don't like taking strategy away from the game. If you're the manager and you feel like you need to use seven pitchers in a game, then you should be able to use seven pitchers in a game. I'm not a fan of using seven pitchers in a game, but if it's if that's your strategy, you should be allowed to do it. Um, there should not be a limit. I mean, if you're if you're basically sitting there saying to a team, you're allowed to have 25 men on your roster, but you can't use any more than four in a given game. Imagine, let's look at what like teams like the Dodgers do right now when they shuttle relievers back and forth to AAA. How many teams are going to really carry eight, nine pitchers you know, in their bullpen? Not a lot. I mean, you might carry six, right? Because, okay, and if we get to extra innings and you got a couple guys that are still available. 
So now you got extra hitters in your lineup, or maybe you go to a six-man starting rotation or whatever the case might be, and guys are going to get shuttled back and forth with options all the time. I think it, it really changes the dynamic of the sport. It changes strategy. I, I don't like it. I think it. I think Buster only bad idea. Now he's trying. I give him credit for trying. Yeah. Hey, one one other one other thing. One really last thing. Um, we're recording this on uh, uh, June 11th, um, and it is the 33rd anniversary of a game that I remember because um, I, I was home. I was 11 year old boy uh, with the chicken pox. And I was watching the Phillies on TV when they beat the New York Mets, who were a pretty good team in 1985, and the Phillies stunk. Um, but they beat the Mets 26-7. to um, And uh, <coughs> Von Hayes they hit the only two home runs in the game in the first inning. He, hit, he let off with a solo home run to make it one nothing, And he also hit a grand slam in the first inning. Um, to make and they finished. Uh, they were up nine nothing after one, sixteen nothing after two. Final score was twenty six to seven. Um, pretty cool. Juan Samuel had a five hit game. Rick Shue had a four hit. <laughs> Glenn Wilson, Bo Diaz. Uh, like I said, only two home runs. And I so was born for another four months. Yeah, so it was, it's a good memory for me, right? <laughs> it's a good memory for me. Until I get to this note that they scored twenty six runs in that game. This year's Phillies twenty two thousand eighteen. Have scored twenty six runs in the entire month of June. That's yeah. uh, what nine games, two and seven in the month of June. Twenty six yeah. runs. Yep, twenty six runs. How about it? Stay hot. Um, well, so that's that's it for us. Um, be sure to check out the uh, rest of the podcasts on the Crossing Broad Network. Uh, Crossing Broadcast, which. Who knows when that's going to air anymore? Uh, it's supposed to be Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Sometimes it's Monday, Wednesday. Sometimes it's Monday, Friday. Sometimes it's Wednesday, Friday. Sometimes it's all three. It's all based on whenever Kyle wants to wants to talk and wants to get his uh, get his opinions out there. Um, uh, there's also our two soccer podcasts. It's always soccer in Philadelphia uh, with Kevin Kincaid uh, and Dave Zeitlin, and um, Crossing Broad FC with uh, Russ Joy and. Um, Phil Kaidel talking about European soccer. And the big one this week, don't miss Snow the Goalie. And I only I know I'm teasing my own show, right, Bob? But this is a big I one. I think for you're us. justified on this one. I'm justified with this one? Yeah. Uh, Snow the Goalie will come out on Wednesday, the 13th. Um, so if you're listening to this uh, before that, just hang on until the 13th. If it's after that date, uh, you can go find it uh, on all of the podcasting channels. Get Snow the Goalie. We have a special guest. Flyers general manager Ron Hextall came on the show with Russ, Russ Joy and I uh, for 22 minutes and talked about the Flyers, which was pretty awesome. Um, no better Flyers podcast out there to get the general manager to, uh, to call uh, to come in on the show. And I didn't, it wasn't even a call in; like we were live using microphones together. So uh, we've got a picture that we tweeted out. Were you guys um, over in Voorhees? We were over in Voorhees. We went nice. over to the skate zone. Um, and, and did it there. So uh, really, really cool, really cool event. So uh, make sure you guys check out the Snow the Goalie podcast as well. So uh, for Bob Wankel, I'm Anthony Sanfilippo. Hopefully next week I'll have a voice and I'll sound a lot better uh, and I won't be coughing into the microphone as much as I did tonight. Uh, until then, uh, enjoy the Phillies and we'll talk to you then. <laughs>